Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. To support our clients through the COVID-19 crisis and beyond, we launched this webinar series. Each week, we bring together two experts from the NHS to briefly present what is going on in their part of the health service. We have now converted this series into a podcast, so you can listen in as and when you like. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon and welcome to the second in our series of, of uh, MTech Access COVID webinars. Uh, very excited to be here again. Last, last week was a success uh, and this week we are building on last week to look at the clinical impact, so changes in clinical practice and, and really what that, uh, what, what's happened as a result of COVID and what's likely to carry on from that, I suppose. Um, again, in case you weren't around last week, the, the reason we're doing these is to help support conversations between our industry, NHS and, and academic colleagues to make sure that we're not losing momentum along the way in, in, in terms of all the great partnership working and, and collaboration that's going on so that no one's getting left behind in, in intelligence along the way and that when when we're all remobilizing and and in fact a lot of uh, a lot of people are still mobile uh, means that actually the all of the conversations can carry on and that everyone is is in the best form informed position that they can be so today we've got two of our MTech access associates with us we've got Liz cross who is an advanced nurse practitioner from Watford um, and does lots of incredible things around uh, near patient testing and diagnostics as well. We've also got Sue McColl, who is a GP and area clinical director from Sus Sussex, uh, not Suffolk, Sussex, uh, and as well as being a GP, looks after lots of um, vulnerable patients within the community as well. and, and runs uh, incredible services down there. So they're going to give us our, their perspectives on everything that's going on at the moment and quite what, what the impact has been for them locally. So Liz, I'll come to you first. Um, simple question, hopefully for you. Uh, just wonder if you could help our, our listeners sort of understand what changes you've seen in, in clinical practice over the last few weeks. Okay, so normally I would sit in a GP practice um, and, you know, patients would come in to see me, um, but it's completely changed. What I do is um, so far from what I was doing a couple of months ago. Um, it, at the moment, for me, about 90% of my consultations are all virtual. Um, we're starting to call it my digital PPE. Um, and one of the biggest changes for me is, is yeah, the implementation of new technology. So it was quite interesting when this all first started to come out. Um, you know, I remember speaking to the partners just going, oh, you know, a couple of years ago, we were talking about FaceTime um, and, you know, perhaps we can start offering that again. And, and they were like, oh, no, 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 the patients, the patients didn't like it. You know, it, it never, it never took off. Well, now look where we are. 
you know, almost everything is being done. And, you know, we're almost, you know, we can be really creative with it as well. Um, it's, it's been absolutely incredible. Um, so when the need is there, you know, yes, patients are going to accept new ways of working and, you know, they're going to adapt to it. But it's really interesting because we always assume we know what the patients want, but it was just a stark realization that we just don't have a clue at all. We just assume so often. Um, and so there's there's loads of opportunities. You know, the NHS right now has really got its groove on. You know, it's all about new ideas, um, you know, trialing stuff out, and it's also about action. So, you know, if you guys have got a good idea, sell it to us, someone who's gonna start listening. It's It's been really inspiring and quite uplifting. You know, obviously it's horrific, you know, we've got, um, but, you know, we're really hoping that when we come out of it, there's going to be some silver linings there. Um, uh, so the other thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about change, um, for me, I do a lot of chronic disease management. Um, and all of a sudden, I've been invited into people's homes, really. You know, I'm talking to them on webcams. Well, you know, I always used to see them in clinic, in my environment, in my base, where, you know, I had the power, whereas now it really is talking to them about, about their reality, you know. You don't think they can take me, they can show me their fridge. You know, if we're talking about diabetes, I can see how they're using their uh, inhalers um, because they'll have them because nine times out of ten, they forget to bring them into clinic. Um, so I can see they're using their devices. I can see how they're managing their medicines. I can, brilliant one, I can check their medicines cabinet. They can literally <laughs> open up the cupboard and they can stick their video camera in there. And they're like, I don't really know what these blue ones do. Um, so there's massive opportunity there. Um, uh, so, and what are the other things that are gonna have, well, um, this time next week, I'll be in a hot hub. Um, and I was talking to someone from the CCG, you know, they're, so it's point of care testing it is, is quite a hard sell um, in my area. Um, but all of a sudden they're sending me emails just saying, oh, you know, well, what else could we put in those hot hubs? You know, when we're, we're doing remote monitoring on patients, what else, what else could we add, you know? Um, you know, could we stick a D dimer in there? There's a lot of P's. Um, so, you know, there's lots of opportunities to, to use more remote monitoring, self-monitoring, wearable tech. Oh, I love when people have got um, a Fitbit on. You know, I'm like, oh, by the way, what's your pulse? Oh, uh, 75. Okay, you just pop up the stairs and come back down again. Tell me what your pulse is again. Brilliant. Or put your Fitbit on grandma. Um, yeah, so I, I'm just loving the tech right now. Um, have I talked too much? No, that that's that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I could it's, keep going because my job's just so different right now. Yeah, fantastic. Could you just for for the audience just quickly explain what what hot hubs are? It might be a term that oh, some people. Oh yes, and it's not a hot tub either. What? Um, <laughs> so we are looking. These are um, like COVID assessment units. Um, so I was really, really hoping that we were going to be able to commission the local drive-through McDonald's 
um, but they weren't letters, so we're next door to it. Um, so these are patients who are, you want to do some remote monitoring on them, or you want to do an assessment on them, but you're trying to keep your hot patients away from your cold, uh, well patients that you're seeing in general practice. And you also um, uh, don't want to overwhelm your acute hospital as well. So if you're worried about a patient at home, um, maybe they're saying they're short of breath or they're kind of day 10, they're short of breath um, and, you know, or the temperature hasn't come down yet. You just, you know, you've done as much as you can remotely, you know, video conferencing, but you really want to get your hands on and eyeball them. Then you'll send. So all the our locality is clubbed together. So we've got one central place where you can uh, book your patients in. And so they, they have to get there in a private car. Um, not a taxi, uh, not walking. Uh, they have a booked appointment and they drive through into the driveway and then a nurse will come out, me, in PPE and then we'll do assessments through um, uh, through the window of the car if we can. Um, there'll be a doctor in the building as well um, and you know depending on the OBS or if you want any further assessment or the doctor actually wants to get them upstairs and see them, maybe it's actually not COVID, maybe it's actually something else, um, then we can get them upstairs. And it, it's just about sort of segregating and uh, your, your patients and protecting yeah. your staff. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Liz. So Sue, just coming over to you, I suppose same question really. What what change have, have you seen in, in clinical practice? So I don't spend much time doing the kind of general practice that Liz is describing anymore. I work for a community trust. So we have uh, community hospitals, which is like geriatric step down wards. It's all the way where all the really complicated elderly people that can't be discharged home, either because of delays or because they're too poorly. They come to us usually for a couple of weeks and we rehabilitate them, sort out all the complex social needs and get them home. We also do all the district nursing, dentistry, end of life care, long term conditions, heart failure nurses, all that sort of stuff. So our day to day work hasn't really changed much because there are still frail elderly people being pushed out of the main hospital into our community hospitals because they can't go home. Our staff are all PPE'd up, but other than that, they're, they're doing their normal work. Um, our long term conditions stuff is the stuff that's changed the most because we receive referrals from the hospital, from GPs or from the patients themselves. And we have completely lost our autonomy for the first time in the decades I've been in the NHS. We can't decide who we see anymore. So we've been given very clear direction from the national decision makers, NHS England. And every single day they do cascade phone calls through to my operational managers to control us. And we're being told when we receive a referral, we have to triage it in a whole new way and we categorize it in three categories. Category three is you probably don't need to be seen during a pandemic. You'll get a phone call and be discharged, whereas you would have been seen two months ago. That's particularly a problem for MSK things. So we take all the MSK referrals for the county, back pain, knee pain, anybody who might need a joint replacement has to come to our physios first. And all those patients with musculoskeletal problems are just being turned away. So God knows what they're doing because they can't see a GP for pain relief. So with then there's pathway two is you probably need seeing 
but it's not going to stop you being admitted to hospital. So you will be seen, but you're going to be left on a waiting list until this is over. Now, if this lasts six weeks, okay. But if this lasts six months, these people are waiting a hell of a long time. And these are people who would have been classed as urgent before this started. So really awful back pain, but you're not paralyzed. So, re but still really quite unwell people. And then pathway one, the only ones we're allowed to see is if it's classed as essential. And essential means you might take up a hospital bed if we don't go and see them. So all of our teams have loads of capacity because there isn't enough people in that category to keep us busy, but we're not allowed to see people we know need us because it doesn't match the national directives and they are watching. So we have to see only those that NHS England in some comfy office somewhere say we can see. So I think the biggest problem for us is we are building a massive waiting list and at the end of this outbreak we're going to have knackered, burnt out, hopefully still alive staff. Those that were retired will go back to retirement, those that were approaching it will go early, those that were struggling with long-term health conditions will all collapse and those that are carers for someone who got very sick will go. So our workforce is going to shrink and we're going to have a massive bow wave of very ill people that haven't had any management for months and who are mentally really, really unwell now because they've been dealing with this chronic illness with no support. And they'll be even trickier and more complex to try and sort out. So what we are doing is creating our own hell and we're really depressed about it. We can see it coming and we're totally powerless to do anything about it. I think there's, there's a change in patient behavior. There is a real reluctance for clinicians and for patients to start new medication or change medication because we can't monitor them, we can't follow them up. Routine bloods for drugs that used to be closely monitored, they're now only being done if we really think they need it. So there's quite a lot of people not having checkup bloods that used to. And that makes clinicians very nervous. And I think it's there's that awful reluctance to do anything because everybody thinks the safest thing is to do nothing. So patients aren't going to A&E. They aren't ringing for help because they're scared. And we know as clinicians, if you catch it early, the reason the NHS copes is because we catch things early. We manage it well. They don't get that sick. We're creating a third world health system because we're going to have really sick people who haven't done anything about it. Health inequalities are going to get worse because this is going to hit hardest those that are on the breadline, that are mentally unwell, that weren't coping anyway. They're all going to go under. And what we're worried about is there is no way we're going to get back on our feet because how do we find all those people who would have come to us? So I think the biggest fear for us is that we aren't doing what we usually do but nobody else is doing it. And when we get to the end of this, we won't know what we've missed. So I think my biggest fear is how much unmet need we are generating and we don't have the technology or the capacity to find them at the end of this. So yeah, I think the biggest change I've seen is that we are now carrying out war medicine and that's not what we do. And the staff are devastated. I spend most of my week sorting out emotional problems with my staff because this is not why we do our job. Morally and emotionally, this is horrible because we take care of people. We make them better. We put them back on their feet. We don't patch them up and throw them out the door. So, yeah, I think the biggest change is we are no longer 
doing what we did two months ago. The NHS has changed. Yeah. And we were holding together the society and they're now just going to get sicker and sicker. So it's quite depressing. That that's that's a fascinating insight and a sort of bit of a counter, I suppose, to to Liz in some respects. And that's probably what we what we all see on the on the front pages, as it were. And um, one thing you mentioned there was kind of there's a, there is a bit of capacity at the moment, which is a bit of a perverse situation, and we've seen it in, in different parts of the system. Um, can you just explain for everyone, you know, how what what you can do with that capacity because i suppose some people might think well if you've got capacity why why aren't you doing all of the other things that you might choose to do there's some of it we can do so for chronic disease management a lot of my staff who are now surplus to requirements although it's not what we call them have been redeployed so i get all the staff that aren't needed in what they used to do doing different things. So we aren't, our health visitors aren't seeing babies and doing immunizations and reviewing people who aren't developing properly. So instead I've got health visitors going onto the wards, having a cup of tea with somebody sat in full PPE because nobody's visiting these patients. So I think there's a strange situation where we've got trained competent clinicians who can't do anything because we haven't got the technology to reach out to people. I know Liz is doing video consultations we can't do that. The community trust hasn't been given any of the digital infrastructure to be able to do that. We're allowed to telephone people. That's it. We haven't got clearance to even video call them. So I could do so much more, especially with the long term condition patients we know about. We've got massive caseloads of people with heart failure and respiratory problems and diabetics. And we know who they are, but we can't even reach out to them. Firstly, because nationally we're being told don't do that just see the essential cases but I could find a loophole and get us around that but we don't have the technology to get through the governance hurdles because if you speak to a patient on an unsecure system you get struck off so even if I had I mean I've got the staff I just haven't got the technology I think what we're crying out for is a way of connecting to patients in a way that's allowed and safe and works we haven't got it yeah and, and and that's really interesting to you know again we we hear lots about the the new things that are being done but to to hear kind of the the discrepancies that still exist within the NHS is really interesting so Liz I suppose picking up on that from from Sue what are the challenges and, and risks that your different ways of working have presented um uh firstly the <laughs> Because it's a new way of working, you know, I completely agree with Sue. It, it is exhausting in a way that, you know, seeing patients face to face wasn't. Because it, I'm now completely on my phone the whole day long. Um, and it's every eight minutes. You know, I don't have that, those, those breaks, that tactileness, that, you know, seeing people I, I literally go to a cave sit on my phone all day long and I, the, the stress levels of you know have I missed something have I probed have I got have I got this right you know like how broad do I need to keep these differential diagnoses before I come down um so you live with that that fear and I come home and I'm smashed I literally chuck my phone down 
and I'm straight out in the garden, I need to touch soil. Um, yeah, so the, the misdiagnosis is a massive thing. You know, are we, are we missing PEs? Are we missing strokes? Are we missing MIs? You know, shortness of breath and chest pain. <laughs> you know, oh, it's COVID. No, it's not. Um, uh, if I become too reliant on tech to reach all my patients, am I missing? Are some people going to miss out as well? You know, I know my folks can use tech, but you know, uh, if you have a phone, what, what if you don't have phone signal? You know, um, language barriers, uh, you don't have the tech, you can't afford it. Um, when tech fails as well, halfway through a consultation, that's really nerve wracking as well. Um, I had a horrible situation um, on Tuesday where I had a chap on the phone who's 25 years old, actively researching suicide. And, you know, I'm having to put the phone down to him to get hold of the, the crisis team who I cannot get hold. I was on call waiting for forever. So I'm there texting him through Accurix, you know, so just so I could maintain a dialogue with him. So there's, yeah, there's loads of challenges out there. Um, it's, it is truly frightening. Um, I've got to see the positives. Otherwise yeah. I won't make it to the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, hearing. There are the plenty of silver linings that you really do have to focus on. Um, and keep drinking the wine and eating the chocolate, Liz. That's how we all get through. <laughs> Can you, is that after you've sure got home? You <laughs> I mean, that's so, yeah, one of the problems with COVID. Is we're all going to become obese alcoholics because you know there's not a lot else to do. There'll be divorces, new babies, obesity, and alcoholism all over the country. It's, oh, I, the amount of Viagra I've good. prescribed over the last. <laughs> I know. I mean, really, all people are bored, it's aren't just... they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I suppose that's the bit yeah. we don't hear so much about. But yeah, there is a... A lot of contraception real, out there. Like, a lot has been done. There um, is a real element to that, that, you you know, these lifestyle behaviours that... Um, yeah, that the black humour is yeah, really... You need it right now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah but no, none of those things are, are positive things for, for the NHS longer term, are they, really? That all of them have a, an implication, obesity... Uh, mental health and everything and, and we are hearing about Starting. those but yeah yeah absolutely so um in terms of everything that you have seen and and I suppose thinking about those you know the positive things as much as anything Liz mm -hmm. how much of those changes do you expect to last and in terms of those things that you do want to last what what support or what needs to happen to embed them um okay so one of the things that I think we've realized is the fact that patients can self-manage and we've, you know, we can do it. Not all of them, but they, they can. Um, and I think we've allowed ourselves to be too, um, allowed them to be dependent on us um, a lot. So I, and I was thinking about this with regard to, you know, pharma. I, when the lockdown happened, I'm at my favorite um, uh, dressings rep. Literally the next day, he sent an email out just going, right, what can I do? What can I do? What are the dressings that I can 
help you with, can help your patients manage at home. You know, I don't have any literature about dressings that I can give to the patient or, or any, any sort of any material, anything that's set up to say, right, okay, well, these are the dressings that you could use. Um, and this is how often you change it. And, you know, because a lot of people can do this, you know, they're getting members of family to help out. Simple dressings, really, this can be done at home. It doesn't have to come into the surgery every time. Um, uh, you know, patients can self-administer drugs and they should, you know, um, I was thinking about, you know, the depot injections that we still get. We still have girls coming in every 12 weeks for an injection, for contraception, right? But there's a self-administering one called Cyanopress. We're not, why haven't we been promoting this before? You know, we've just been doing the same old thing and trotting it out each time. But, but there's other ways, you know, we're always banging on, oh, doing GP surgery is so stressed, you never get an appointment. But we keep bringing people in, they could manage at home if we helped them. Um, yeah, please, can we have a B12 injection that patients can administer at home? I know back in the day they used to, but now we just keep on bringing them in for that injection. Um, INR testing, you know, for all those warfarin patients, Come on, they can do this at home. They don't, we don't need to have all my frail elderly all together in one clinic, running two of these clinics twice, you know, twice a week. You know, why aren't we, why aren't we encouraging more home monitoring? Um, uh, why aren't dressings partnering up with a bit of tech? You know, I've got some pretty good phone, um, um, phone cameras now. You know, could, can dressing companies partner up with tech companies? And so, we can, you know, is that a possibility? Um, so it's, it's For you, is it is it all about sort of that, that enablement then of... I that, think so. I really... And, and getting as much support to sort of drive that trajectory. Yeah, because it's... We, we generate a lot of work for ourselves in general practice and, you know, why can't we reach out to pharma to help us help the patients manage that yeah. they're, they're experts yeah. in their condition thank you very much you know, um, yeah um, so i suppose sue just um just coming back to you then in terms of that lasting change piece what what are the things that you expect to to last or or, or and well um, i mean we're pretty confident this is going to go on for six months and the impact of it will be around for years because the government's promised more money than it can possibly afford to spend. So there is the health bow wave that's going to hit us right in the middle of winter when we've got a flu epidemic. And then there's all the long term consequences, financial and emotional, that we're going to have to mop up. And I think the other thing that this has done is test system relationships in a way that none of us would ever have chosen to do it. So I was speaking to people in my position around the country where different systems are running with hospitals, community services and GP groups and CCGs. Ours is quite functional. We've got one very headstrong chief exec, but we all pretty much help each other out. So it's coming to light the strength of our relationship. And, you know, we're ringing each other and offering PPE and offering advice. 
so I think for us, it's giving us a boost that we had good relationships. But in some areas, the working relationships are being highlighted as being really fragile. So I think on the far side of this, there's going to be a, a big piece of work to rebuild relationships and trust and culture and facilitate conversations because there's going to be a lot of deep scarring from the you didn't give us PPE, you didn't give us staff. You know, I think this is going to be a problem going forward. I think this is highlighting both good and bad leaders. So it's throwing a spotlight on those that can do it and those that have been promoted way beyond their capability and can't do it. So I think at the end of this, there'll be a flurry of need for leadership training, coaching. You know, the people who've been shown to be useless will need training up and supporting. And I think all the staff will need support and coaching to heal from the trauma of what they've just been through. So there's a big emotional piece for staff and for systems. But I think for patients, Liz is quite right. We are far too paternalistic. I don't think mm. they lean on us. I think we grab them. We disempower them. And I think we've just had a bit of a shock of actually they don't need us. They can do this. So I think there'll be a huge ask for patient information leaflets, patient information apps, empowering patients. You know, can all these long term conditions log on to a website and answer a questionnaire and that will categorise them as whether or not they actually need seeing? Because when we've got this bow wave of unmet need, how are primary care, community care and hospitals going to gather the lists of people who need to be seen, triage them, pull them in, make sure they've been seen and then somehow take them off that list? Now, we don't have the infrastructure to do that because we assume that the old system's still running. Referrals come in, we do certain things with them, we see the patients, we tick a box, they go off the 18-week lesson, off they go. There is no infrastructure for seeking people out, triaging them and getting them seen. So I think that'll need doing. I think um, there'll be a, a big need for doctors and patients to keep the bits that are good. So video consulting and everything else is brilliant, but that's not how clinicians are trained. We're trained hands-on, face-to-face. So it, I think we will keep video consulting and everything that Liz is describing, but we need training because you triage in a different way. I've worked for the GP out of hours service. I'm quite comfortable to speak to a mum of a hot child and not admit that child. But that took me years. I worried about the first hundred that I spoke to. So we're going to have to retrain our clinicians to be able to triage on the phone. You ask different questions. You write down different things in the notes. You give different advice. So I think we have to accept this is not temporary. This is going to permanently change the state of health, what the NHS can do and how we work. And I think the companies that get ahead of that curve and realise the world's going to be different and prepare to be there to help us adjust when the dust settles, they're the ones that are going to succeed. And I think all the old ways of selling things and prescribing and making choices, a lot of it will change. The pathways will change, the processes will change. So I think key thing is to realise this is going to be absolutely revolutionary. The NHS is not going to ever be the same again if it survives. I suspect there'll be a lot of private healthcare after this finishes yeah. because Fantastic. the waiting list go back to being two years. Brilliant and I think that's a really powerful message to, to leave on. Unfortunately we are out of time you know I could sit here for all afternoon and, and carry on talking with you and um, yeah I wish we had that opportunity. Um, so I'd just like to thank you both um hugely for, for your contributions so really powerful insight i'm sure everyone will agree um 
next week we're going to be looking at finance and commissioning and, and how that's changing and, and will continue to change uh, going forward over the next few months and, and years no doubt. Uh, of subsequent episodes from that we're, we're going to look at uh, pharmacy, hospitals, uh, service reconfigurations um, and if you've got any questions at all, uh, feel free to send them in to nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk and share the invite to the to the webinar with any of your colleagues or friends. Um, yeah, as many uh, people as you can do because uh, we're keen to keen to share what we can with as many people as we can. So thanks again for joining us today. Uh, tune in next week for finances and commissioning. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.